this is Rodney Barnes, and thank you guys for listening to the Spoiler Country, and I look forward to coming back. It's time to enter the Spoilerverse via our secret portal at the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John and Kenrick and Jeff. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on Spoilerverse.com. But... If you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcaster, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us, leave us a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at spoilercountry at gmail.com. To the Spoilerverse, and welcome back to Spoiler Country. I'm Kenneth Regan. That is Mr. Horsley. And today on the show, it's vampires in Philadelphia. It's the Philadelphia writer, Rodney Barnes. Yeah, it is. And uh, he's got quite the career under his belt, man. Dude, Rodney is the man. He is the man. He has done well. He was on the Boondocks, My Wife and Kids, which I love that show. I Dude, wish Boondocks it was still is amazing. On. I, I sorry to go back on that one, but I love Boondocks. Yeah, uh, I would. Well, I remember Boondocks when it was just the the strip. Yeah, me too. I read yeah. all of them in this strip. Uh, Everybody hates Chris. Those yep. who can't. Marvel's Runaways. American Gods. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. And the guy is, yeah, he's amazing. Very prolific in what he does, and and chooses his projects very carefully. To where he does, you know, he's done a bunch of great stuff. Yeah. Have you started reading Philadelphia at all? Because if you haven't, you need to. It's ridiculous. I, I have not, but I feel like I have to now because of the we've had more than one person on the show who's worked yeah. on that. Yeah, we had Jason Alexander, who is the uh the artist. Yeah. And then Rodney does all the writing. And I think this is was conceived by Rodney and then he brought on Jason to help him put it to paper. Um so, which so now we have to now I have to read it. Have a better person than that. So right. yeah, dude, I I I as soon as I got off with Jason, I hadn't read it yet. And so I was like, I'm going to go get this. And I, I ordered number one through eBay because you nice. can't get it anywhere unless you buy it from a spectator, you know? A right, spectator? Right. Is that right word? I mean, a sure, spectator? But no, a, a dealer or somebody who's trying to sell it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's off the spectator market. There you go. There you go. There you go. That's how you would properly use, properly use spectator. Anyways, why don't we get into it? Jeff had a good time, right? So yeah, I, I mean, I assume so. Yeah, he didn't tell me otherwise. So <laughs> <laughs> he didn't say don't air this one, <laughs> right? Right. He was like, he, he was like, no, it's awesome. And I'm sure it is. So let's sit back, listen to Jeff and uh, Rodney Barnes in his own words. Hello, listeners of Spoiler Country. Today we have a very special guest. Ronnie Barnes. How's it going, Mr. Barnes? Doing well, Jeff. How are you? I'm doing very well. 
I must admit, I've been very much enjoying reading your Philadelphia. It's a fantastically well-written series. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Oh, it's it's my pleasure. Um, my pleasure to read it. Um, so, where did your love of writing come from? Uh, man, I guess I have to ask the universe that. I mean, I've uh, <laughs> I've always had an interest in um, literature. You know, I never thought I'd actually be writing for a living, but um, I've always enjoyed it from childhood all the way up. And then um, at a I guess in my late 20s, I decided I was going to give it a shot and came out to Hollywood and uh, took my chance. And things seemed to have worked out a little bit. Yeah. And so in 1995, you went and you moved yourself to L.A. to start writing. Where did that confidence come from? Like, what point did you think to yourself, you know what? I've got the goods. I can do this. I'll be successful. I'm just going to take my chances. Uh, I still don't think that way. Um, (laughs) I was... uh, I think uh, I got to a point where why not take a shot? You know, I sort of reverse engineered my way into Hollywood. I don't think I've ever gotten to a place where it was. I wish it was as clean as the way that you just um, presented it. Um, you know, I, I when I was in film school, uh, the School of Communications at Howard University, I started to get. Uh, immersed into the world of film. I started working on films as a production assistant. And, um, you know, I was around it so much that I knew if I was ever going to take it to the next level, I had to come to L.A. because that's where movies are made. And um, little by little, um, I got closer and closer, and eventually it sort of worked out. Yeah, so you've been the production assistant for The Pelican Brief, which was a good movie, Clear and Present Danger, and Quiz Show, among many of them. I mean, your, your IDM Pro um, biography is extremely long at this point, but those are th- uh, three of them I just mentioned. So what does a production assistant actually do? Uh, whatever the production needs them to do. It could be anything from um, fetching soda for the <laughs> higher-ups to... Um, Working with extras, working with background, um, whatever production needs. I mean, it truly is what it is. You know, a production assistant, whatever the production needs. That, that that's that's just that's really cool. Like that, you it's one of those jobs where the average viewer probably doesn't realize is going on behind the scenes, but it must be in, integral to making sure everything is running smoothly. It is. I'd like to think so. I mean, um, I, I've had. Man, I was a production assistant for about six years, and I've been asked to do virtually everything, um, everything under the sun. Uh, but I gained a lot of experience, and I learned the psychology of how movies are made, you know, just the process of how movies are made. And it was an invaluable uh, education. So was there anything that was been asked of you that's on, like, the weird side? Like, go grab me this or, like, very... Did you deal with any, let's say, diva actor or actresses? Yeah, I mean, I can't say the name, but, you know, an actress, a really famous actress threw a uh, toothbrush at me one time. Um, And I've had, I mean, man, over the years, I've had a lot of weird instances, um, you know, meltdowns. Making movies is tough. And it's a lot of pressure. And oftentimes, I think people lose themselves um, during the process. But uh, for the most part, it's been, it was a positive experience. Now, you, so you went from film school to being a production assistant. 
is the process of getting a job like production assistant the same as, let's say, I'm a high school teacher, so you know you go for an interview, you get uh, you know hired, you know, or maybe you go for several interviews. Is production assistant a similar setup, or is it more you know you make you're making connections, or you're or you have an agent helping you out? How does that process work? I was an extra on the Pelican Brief, and a guy by the name of Gary Fiorelli was uh, he was the key set production assistant. He was the head of the production assistants. And I didn't know what a production assistant was, but I just saw a bunch of guys running around and he was the one that was telling them where to go. And so uh, I asked him, like, you know, how do you get a job like that? And he said uh, he offered me a job to they had like big days where they had a lot of crowd scenes at the Washington Monument, I think it was. And uh, he asked me if I wanted to come and work for a day with them. And I was like, yeah, sure. And that day sort of uh, started a career. That, that That is just, it's just very cool. Uh, just how little acts of fate can really make that big of a difference in our lives like that. Very much so. I mean, I can say for the better part of my career, it's all been being in the right place at the right time or saying the right thing at the right time. I mean, it's been the opposite too. I've said the wrong thing at the uh, <laughs> wrong time and, you know, vice versa. But for the most part, I can say that when I needed, you know, to get to the next place, I've met that person or done that thing that needed to be done to get me to the next level. Well, I'm sure it also has a lot to do with just how good you were at your job, I imagine, as well. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it's funny. Being good at it is subjective. It's the same thing as writing. It's the same, okay. the same way, like, you know, someone may love something and another person may hate it as much as that other person loved it. So I can say the only consistent thing is really just working hard and um, people appreciating hard work. Yeah. Well, one thing that I read that was very interesting about you is that you were a stand-in from Michael Clark Duncan in The Green Mile. Yes. He is one big dude, though. I mean, so you must be a huge dude as well. I'm just guessing. Yeah. I mean, we weren't built the same. Uh, We, you know... We weren't the same complexion, um, but I really, um, I kind of, I was working as a production assistant on a movie, Stigmata. And, um, oh, that's a great movie. I with Patricia, Patricia Arquette, right? Yeah. And uh, Gabriel Byrne and yeah. Neil Long. And, great um, movie. Yes. And so uh, I really wanted to get on the Green Mile because I wanted to meet Stephen King because he's my favorite author. And yeah. um, the transportation captain, uh, was going to meet Frank Darabont, who directed the movie. And he offered me the opportunity to get in the back of the 1939 paddy wagon that was used in the movie to go to Frank and basically pitch myself to him. And because I'm a really big guy, uh, in his mind, big guy, black guy, hey, John Coffey, that kind of worked (laughs) out. And so I did it and um, I met Frank and I, he hired me as a production assistant and a stand-in, and um, I was there from the beginning to the end. It must have felt pretty good for the ego to, to look at Michael Clark and be like, yeah, I'm built like that guy. Well, again, he had a lot more muscle than I had. Uh, I think for my stomach was the size of his chest. It was like it was the same <laughs> size, but it was inverted. But, um, but yeah, Michael was a great guy. I, I miss him a lot. Yeah, he he was a fantastic actor. I mean, he um he was a great kingpin. He was, you knew what a guy like that 
you know, if he had lived, his career would have kept going with a fantastic trajectory. His acting yeah. was extremely strong. Yeah, I mean, he was a great character actor and um, very unique, as you pointed out. Did you ever get a chance to meet Stephen King? Yeah, I did. He signed. Um, I have every Stephen King book uh, signed up into the last one that just came out. Uh, oh, wow. Yeah, Steve was um, he's a great guy. I really enjoyed meeting him. And uh, he gave me some advice and um, of a picture of he and I in my library. Now, now you met him. This was before you became famous, so that must have been some pretty good advice that he gave you. <laughs> well, I did not know I was famous, but he, before uh, I was still at the production assistant level. So yes, um, he was kind to me, like regardless of level. If you don't mind, what advice did he give you for? Because I mean, someone like me who tries is trying to break into writing, mm -hmm. I, I imagine it's getting advice from Stephen King is sort of like getting advice from, I guess, Shakespeare if you lived in the 17th century. Yeah, I mean, it was just, it was mostly along the lines of um, how important reading is to the process of writing. Um, focus. Um, a lot of the stuff that's in On Writing, his great book about writing, um, a lot of that kind of stuff, it was all process, you know, refining your process and getting to a place where, um, you know, regardless of what's going on in your life, just uh, approaching it from a professional place and a focused place. Yeah, um, like I said, he actually did one of my favorite books, The Stand, which was absolutely incredible. And I can't imagine what it'd be like to actually, you know, get a chance to meet that guy. I mean, I assume, like I said, you were he was a hero of yours, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, he was. Uh, he was the reason why I was jumping through all of those hoops. I mean, he and uh, Frank Darabont, who had just done Shawshank, um, was a uh, fantastic. I mean, it was uh, the whole thing was a great experience. I mean, I think it took six months to make the movie, but Tom Hanks was great. You know, Michael Jeter, um, everybody was fantastic. David Morse, well, it was all great guys. I mean, you met some incredible people. One, one of the interesting things, um, once again, reading about you was that over the years, you built a strong relationship with Chris Rock. You were a producer mm -hmm. on Everybody Hates Chris. You were right mm -hmm. on two award shows that Mr. Um, Rock was hosting, including the Oscars. Mm -hmm. So how did that start? And um, and why do you guys work so well together, do you think? Uh, I think sensibilities. Uh, we're around the same age. And um, and on Everybody Hates Chris, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the show, but it's a lot, lot of Chris Rock voiceover in the show. I wrote a lot of that and produced it for the show. So we spent a lot of time together in the recording booth doing ADR. And um, we just, over that time of walking to the uh, recording studio and talking and getting to know each other over time, uh, we just, a relationship like any person, um, just developed and um, we hit it off. We have a lot of mutual interests. Now, it's, it's kind of interesting that, um, you know, when you, uh, as we will get eventually to Philadelphia, which was uh, is very um, action horror based, Everybody loves Chris, but obviously um, comedy. And as you're writing for these um, hosting shows like the Oscars as well, is there is it a different mindset to writing comedy versus some um, horror? Do you approach it differently? Do you look at it differently? And I guess also, I mean, is it to be a good writer though? Is it do you have to you know? Is that means you're gonna be good at almost any type of writing you approach? You know, um, I can only speak for me. Um... It was more of, I look at it all as story. So whether I'm writing a comic book or a movie or a TV show or whatever it is, it all has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And 
you know, I look at it from a character place as well. So if, if a character has a sense of humor or a character is insane, it's still a character. So I really don't differentiate one from the other uh, that much. It's all just writing and telling stories to me. Yeah, and writing comedy um, for someone like Chris Rock, who, once again, is one of the top-tier comedians probably in history, is there, did it feel, is it at all threatening approaching him with jokes and trying to see if you can get him to laugh? Or because your humor is similar, was it just kind of like a natural fit? Um, 50-50. I mean, there's always that period in the beginning when you don't know someone and, you know, Chris will let you know if what you said wasn't funny. Um, so there's always, you know, that, that bridge that you have to cross to gain that person's respect in the realm of humor. Um, like you said, not only is he one of the funniest people that ever lived, but he also is in the community of really funny people. So in order to be able to hang around, you've got to be able to offer something. And um, fortunately, we found a good place where whatever I do that he likes, um, it's kept me around for however long that's been, almost 15 years, I guess. So is the secret writing something that is fun is funny to you or are you writing something that you think will be funny to him? Oh, right for me. I mean, I'm always trying to make myself laugh. If I don't believe in it, it's hard to get somebody else to believe in it. So, you know, it's um, I don't write comedy as much today, but anything that I write typically has a few jokes or something in it. But um, I'm always looking to entertain myself first. So. So if you, if you were watching, um, everybody, um, hates Chris. So a lot of that is probably then a little bit of you, your life then. Um, well, yeah, I mean, it, most, I've been fortunate that most of the things that I've worked on, um, I see myself in it. So if I can find a place where I connect, certainly the things that work out, you know, some of the things, uh, the things that, uh, I, I fit best in are things that there's an experience. You know, I grew up in an urban environment. Um, I understand what it's like to not have a lot of money. Um, you know, I went to junior high school and, um, you know, wasn't exactly the popular guy. So it's like once you start to make the, um, the empathy bridge from yourself to another character, it's uh, easier to write for that for that character yeah that's that's very cool and when when you're doing something as well like the oscars which again you're doing comedy as well that has to be again such a, a totally different mindset because once again not only is the pressure really high because so many people watch the oscars and it gets so amazingly scrutinized more than almost any other type of broadcast i imagine even the approach to writing that has got to be totally different as well not really i mean um the way Chris works, it's kind of a relaxed atmosphere. So, you know, because we've worked together for so long and I've worked on some of his stand-up specials as well. So it wasn't really a thing of, um, you know, the, the stuff on the outside, you know, how many people watch it and, and, you know, how big of a deal it is. It's like, you only really realize that when the show is going on, when you're putting it together, it's really more of trying to find the best material that you can. And, um, things that sort of uh, suit what he wants to do, the theme of what he wants to do. So when you're writing the comedy for the Oscars, are you thinking about either the 
actors you kind of want to i don't maybe not the right word a skewer but reference is it maybe do you are you thinking about maybe what's going on either culturally or um the media or whatever what what kind like when you're sitting down thinking about what you want to say in something in that kind of area how are you how are you approaching that i mean all of the above it's not so much where it's um it's not so much a thing if you watch the Oscars for the most part it takes on the tone of whoever the host is. I don't even think they had a host last year, but yeah. it, it takes on the tone of that of that person. So what you're trying to do is um, that person sort of guides you as to where they'd like to go. And your job is to kind of hop on and just go for the ride and add whatever you can to that. Because I think we had like 20 writers or so. I don't, uh, we had a bunch of writers. So, everybody's constantly um, submitting stuff. You know, we're always just jokes, jokes, like hundreds of jokes. And then at a certain point, um, Chris decides what he wants to say and what he doesn't want to say. Yeah. So going back just a, just a little bit. So would you say that when you're from, from a writer standpoint, because once again, I, I, I do teach writing. Um, does it help you? As you know, when you're writing harder or comedy, is one type of writing helping you become better in the other areas of writing as well? Are you writing? Are you when you after writing from like the Oscars, do you find yourself writing better, either other um, sitcom or when you're doing your Philadelphia um, or something? Um, I, I think um, you know, writing jokes. I don't. It's not even though jokes are stories. You know, they do have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Um, just the exercise of writing really helps writing, uh, regardless of what type of writing you're doing. The more I'm writing, like right now, um, between writing all the books, and I'm doing it all at the same time right now, and just the exercise of having to be in the routine of knowing what time I'm going to get up and knowing what time I'm going to start doing what I do for a day, that really, it doesn't matter what the thing is that's in front of me. It really is more of a continuously having something in front of me and um, getting into a rhythm of writing more than anything else than what it is. So how, how many hours do you spend a day writing or, and it, or do you put when you write, are you writing one thing a day or are you writing multiple different projects in a day and going back and forth from them? Uh, it's according to what that day yields. Like uh, if I'm working on the HBO show, I typically work on that um, three, four days straight. Uh, maybe a week. It's according to how many scenes I have. Um, and then when I'm done that and we're going through the editing process on that, I may hop on to the movie and write the second act to that. Um, or if I'm on deadline for Philadelphia, I may have to put that down and, um, you know, put in a week on uh, trying to get a book finished. It's, it's no real, it, it's chaos more than anything else. Um, there is no structure to it it's just more of really what's in front of me and what's due first are you uh, are you allowed to mention which movie you're working on right now uh yeah it's um it's a horror uh, monster movie for uh, new regency um we don't have a title for it yet but uh it's like a godzilla movie oh that sounds really awesome is, when, when do you think the turnaround date is going to be for completion on that uh, I'm afraid to say because if the, the producers here, they're going to expect this script sooner <laughs> rather than later. But uh, I hope to have it done uh, by the fall. I hope to have a script done by the fall. I don't know oh. when we're going to shoot because of the pandemic. 
Well, that's um. So is 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 in the scripts phase? I assume um. Is it guaranteed for completion? Uh, it's guaranteed. I'm going to write the script. Uh, as to whether or not we're making the movie anytime soon, that has a lot to do with the pandemic and um, all the politics around that. It it it, it would be nice if we got our shit together and we fixed the uh, issue that we're having with the COVID right now. It would be nice. It would be nice. <laughs> you know, everything keeps getting pushed back. So um, it. Are you as as frustrated as I am that this is all because some jackasses can't put on a damn mask when they go outside? Yeah, I mean, you know, but I think it speaks to um, where we are as a society. You know, some people actually look at it as, you know, their liberties are being infringed upon. But, you know, they're going to be more frustrated the longer this takes to, um, you know, to, to go through the through our society. So it is frustrating. Yes. And as someone who, like I said, I'm a teacher and I have to, in about three weeks, decide whether or not I'm going to go back into the classroom or not. The fact that that issue is on, it's still around because of people's decisions, in quotations, is very frustrating on, on, on my level. And so I can definitely just imagine what it's like on your level. It's tough. I mean, I'm fortunate that, um, you know, I, I operate in a space where you can write from anywhere. So... I've been writing nonstop since this has started, and I'm kind of an introvert anyway, so being in a room for long periods of time isn't necessarily that painful. I mean, for me, what bothers me or what hurts the most is just how it's affected the world, how it's affected the economy, the people that we've lost, um, the disruption to, um, you know, American life that's really more so what's happening to other people more so than what's happening to me. And, and I will say, um, growing up for the most part, I didn't always realize or that how tangible politics is in daily life. Uh, it always, sometimes always seemed like something that was going on in Washington, DC, something going on, maybe uh, away from you. But I do think this pandemic has definitely, hopefully awakened a lot of people's eyes to the, how, closely decisions made in one place, Washington, can affect you daily. Yeah. I mean, from a local level to a federal level to, you know, it's, uh, it all matters. And so well, one thing I thought was interesting, and we're, we're, like I said, we're going to hit Philadelphia very soon. Um, it does a, a lot of um, humor and, and not only humor, but your, your writing with Philadelphia does have, a, at least as far as when I was reading it, a political aspect to it. Do you feel that, or do you ever cons- are concerned with um, how putting politics in something that you're doing could affect people's perception of it? Or is it something that, once again, principle, I want to say this, I need to say this, I'm going to say it? Um, I don't really look at it as political per se. I think because of a, a few of the characters come from the world of American history, in American politics, but there isn't really a lot of politics per se. Um, I don't necessarily take an opinion left or right as to um, how we should be as a society or who we should be as a society. I kind of let the characters talk about what's important to them and I try to lead myself out of the equation. So what made you decide to start writing comic books? Obviously, that's not where you started as a writer. What made you decide? You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna go in this direction. Uh, I've loved comic books my entire life. Uh, I I learned 
um, storytelling, I'd say, from comic books. I mean, I've been collecting and um, reading since five, six years old. So um, I've always had a love for them. Um, I tried to get into comics actually before TV and film, and it didn't work out. And so when the opportunity presented itself, uh, I took it and um, jumped into the arena of writing comics. So what comic books were you reading? Uh, which ones did you grow up on? Um, when I was a kid, kid, um, it was more uh, whatever Neil Adams did. Uh, um, I love like Batman and Green Lantern. And oh, uh, yes. if, I, if I saw his very distinctive style of art, um, you know, I was in. And so that was, and then eventually as it evolved, you know, the George Perez's and Jim Starlin, like I followed artists for a long time. And then it evolved into writers, uh, the Neil Gaimans and Alan Moores and, you know, those folks. And so um, it wasn't so much particular characters as much as it was creators. Well, you have fantastic taste in um, writers from, from what you just said. I'm a huge Green Lantern fan and the Neil Adams, Daniel Neil Green Lanterns were so well done. I mean, it was obviously they were one of the first real attempts, especially in D.C., to make commentary on anything that was happening in the world in comic books. Yeah, I mean, I love, um, I, I loved, you know, the Speedy episode uh, issue where, yep. um, you know, Speedy was on drugs and they dealt with race and they dealt with a bunch of stuff. And Batman was more like James Bond, whereas he had been campy before. Um, so, you know, just that period sort of spoke to where I was as a kid and really resonated with me. Now. Obviously, for me, um, Daniel Adams and Daniel, when they were writing, was, that was before, honestly, before I was born, to be honest. Um, mm -hmm. how, when I can only imagine what it was like as a kid to approach them when those stories when they were new. Were they, was it shocking for you? Like, did your eyes open up and go, holy crap, this was possible in a comic book? Or, you know, do you, was it something that you kind of quickly said, oh, okay, this is just what's happening? Um, yeah, I didn't give it that much thought. I just thought it was really cool that it was happening. Um, and this is a really cool book. And it, it wasn't so much that I gave a lot of thought to, um, cause I wasn't that cognizant of, a, I didn't have a reference point to what, you know, doing it one way or another way. So, um, just the fact that it was done was enough for me. And for Neil Gaiman, I imagine you were reading, uh, Sandman. No, uh, same man, but I think he did some other stuff. But Miracle Man, oh, Miracle, I believe, yep. was the first for me. And then later, Sandman. Um, and he did some other stuff in between, too. So, yeah. Yeah. Neil Gaiman is, once again, it was one, one of my personal favorite um, writers as well. So, why Philadelphia? What brought you to this idea as something that you, you got passionate about? Um, I've had the idea in different forms for the better part of my life. Uh, there was a show, Cole Shack, the Night Stalker, as a kid that I loved, uh, the movies of the week. And they really spoke to me. Um, and I just always wanted to tell a vampire story. And over the years, you know, once you get an idea, uh, once I get an idea, I, it, I can't, you know, it, it won't go away. And so, I'm constantly rolling it around my head and it evolves and it morphs and it shifts until I start to put pen to paper and then it becomes whatever it is, whatever it's going to become. So one great thing about Philadelphia is that even though, once again, there's vampires and there's 
horror and gore and everything else. It's a very personal story, in, in at least in my eyes, from between a father and a son, Jim Sangster Jr. and and his father. Um, it's like it's basically like the at least from my eyes, the core of that entire series. Am I correct on that? You are correct, sir. So what? So that relationship once again is is a very rough relationship in the story. Um, I think the the series opens up with um, Sangster Jr. basically being happy that his father's dead. Um, I guess it doesn't paint a great picture of, of that father. Where does that, where did the idea come from? Is this anything from your, did you draw from your life and you brought it to this? Is it just, um, a good idea for a character that you brought in? Um, uh, you know, I, I think it was, it wasn't so much a thing of, uh, um, uh, I, a, I don't think he's happy. His father's dead. I think he's happy that he's done with this chapter in his life, or at least he believes he's done with this chapter of his life. And, I think for me, yeah, I had, you know, issues as a kid and things that I struggled with with my father. I met him later in life. But um, I think it was more of just wanting to have a layered, complex place that I was starting from between this estranged father and son and really having to do the work to put them back together again. Well, I think that the key point of any great story, no matter how fantastic you make it, you, as long as the main character is grounded in something that feels genuine and real, I think our audiences will accept almost any type of story, no matter how fantastical you get. Uh, yes, I believe that to be true. Um, one thing I, I did wonder, and I might be um, stretching this a little bit, there's the idea in, in, the, in the inside covers, you always put like a picture of an autopsy. And uh-huh. I kind of always looked at that from a symbolic um, way that that's the, you're, you're kind of get, getting an autopsy or look at the character of Jim Sangsters and his psychology a little bit. Am I put, um, pushing too far into this or is it just a um, cool inside cover? Uh, it's a cool inside cover, but I think we were going for more of a feel like the movie seven where we were getting into a hard boiled, even though it doesn't always play out that way. We wanted to give the feel of the detective investigative, um, part of the story as much as the vampire part. I gotcha. Um, and as we were talking about a little bit about like kind of like political undertones to it, um, I, I do see there's does seem to be some in um, Philadelphia. Um, in, in other words, in, in issue one, you have um, some information about crimes and the police and the idea about um, who the police truly care to investigate. Um, Cause there's a reference about if the, when the characters who uh, people who had died, if he had more money, maybe they'd be looking into it a little bit more. And also, you have a, the president as a as a vampire. All types of groups, police, um, the wealthy, president, all kind of figurative maybe predators. Is this kind of the area you were going with that? Um, I think it was more a, a conversation about class um, and class and perspective as it relates to class. It's like. More about John Adams, you know, being a president really came more from he was a founding father. And so he would have a different perspective as to what America means. You know, the person, one of the inventors of the idea of America would have a completely different perspective uh, of what we've built America to be today. Um, Whether that's a pro or a con, you know, probably you have to talk to each founding father. But John Adams certainly had his own unique perspective. And if you look down the roster of the characters, they all sort of fit into a um, institutional idea of what America is. 
And I was going for that more so than anything else, uh, just the procedure and the idea of how America works. So was there something specific to John Adams other than being the founding father and this pers- that you thought to yourself he'd be a, fan- a, a fantastic idea for a vampire or to be made into a vampire? Well, I felt like he, um, of all the founding fathers, um, you know, he was sort of in that middle place of not getting a lot of love. You know, certainly not like Jefferson or Washington, like the famous ones. Um, and I thought, like, what would he feel if he were alive today and he had the opportunity and the perspective to be able to refashion America uh, kind of in the, uh, in the guise of what they originally were going for. It was more about that than anything else. Well, like I said, well, I, I love the writing in Philadelphia. I think it's so strong and it does feel extremely layered uh, uh, throughout that series. Um, one thing in issue two um, is that, that you wrote, and I thought was just very interesting. I, if you don't mind, I'm just going to, so for the listeners, so they um, can, can hear it. Uh, so issue, issue two, Miss Estelle has a great interaction with, um, is my pronouncing it right, Tevin? Tevin? Yes. Tevin. Tevin. Yeah. Tevin is offering her the gift of vampirism, which, um, which in, in his mind, I guess, is a gift because there is immortality. And she replies, it's supposed to hurt, baby. If there ain't no pain, you don't learn. One day you look up, your whole life is gone. We get the time we do. Anymore is an abomination. And I think it's a wonderful interaction because, once again, it's two separate philosophies. Uh, Tevin being the idea of the importance of the gift of living forever, the pr- perspective of living forever. Then you have Miss Estelle who's looking at um, life as something that needs should be short, that there is lessons in that mortality, in, in at least the way it seems. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I was wondering if that was part of the philosophy of your series, the, the, the debate between Tevin and Miss Estelle. Yeah, it is. I mean um... – you know, much like even the Green Mile, um, you know, we each owe a death. I think there's a similar thing here with Philadelphia of saying, um, is immortality, if you have immortality and you don't have purpose, you know, is it as great a thing as seemingly it would be? I don't think anybody looks forward to their own demise, but there's something to be said about knowing that you only have a certain amount of time and that you have to do the best with it. That you um, that you can. So what you're saying, so vampirism doesn't have to be an abomination. If if you had that vampirism and you chose to do good things, like Tevin eventually does, then it's worth then it's worthwhile. Yes, but I think you have to have a very unique um, way of looking at life. I mean, I think a lot of the people that John Adams turns are people who are suffering, and people who are suffering tend to not look at life in a, um, you know, in a happy way, like they want more of it. Actually, sometimes it can be the opposite. So I think for, um, for Tevin, who now has perspective in immortality, because it's not just living forever. It's like, um, I don't have to worry about survival anymore. All I have to do is drink blood. I live forever. I'm stronger than I was before. I don't have to worry about illness. Um, a lot of the things that we're concerned about He's not, you don't have to worry about that anymore when you're a vampire. And it gives you the opportunity to actually think and um, consider a lot of things that you weren't thinking about when you were struggling to survive as a human being. So in in very real way, then Tevin becomes almost better from having the perspective of time and the time to think. Yes. And, and, I, and I can't help but think, 
that's almost like a commentary on people because we spend all our lives working, eating, um, just trying to get through our day that we probably are not, a lot of people don't spend our time thinking about what we could do. Yeah, I mean, that's the that's again, that's a part of the character of America where you're um, we work so hard, you know, throughout the course of our lives, um, the structure of how American life works and capitalism that, um, you know, you don't really get an opportunity to as some people do, but more often than not, um, you're just surviving, you're not really living. And if there's a higher purpose or a higher calling, sometimes it gets diverted from the idea of just having to survive or trying to figure out how you're going to survive. Yeah. Back back in the day, I had a background. Before I became a teacher, my, my background was in anthropology. I had a, my degree in anthropology, um, such as it is. Um, and I remember there was a study that they did based um, from modern society versus um, some of the um, more uh, tribe uh, tribes living in different parts of the, um, of the world. And they said that the amount of work done per day is greater in um, civil, in what we consider the civilized world than in more primitive cultures. Mm-hmm. I thought that was phenomenal that in many ways our um, attempt to become more civilized or more advanced is actually causing us more stress, more work, less time to contemplate anything. And if you add in that idea of becoming rich, you know, the need to, you know, kind of live better than everybody else to that equation, um, you're actually going to probably quadruple that beyond an eight hour workday or a 10 hour workday. If you're, you know, working, working, working multiple jobs or, you know, uh, even as an entrepreneur or, or what have you. It's easy, I think, to get sidetracked in the seeing is that work is all there is to life. I agree with you completely. Uh, one of the things I teach, um, I teach the American dream or the constant American dream when we do uh, several novels in um, in my classes, um, including uh, Death of the Salesman. And we talk, talk about the American dream and as how it is not necessarily a positive. In many ways, mm-hmm. it's almost like that little carrot that's kept brought just a little further ahead of you to kind of convince you you keep working yourself in many ways to death, like um, the character in Death of a Salesman, and it's and it's not necessarily the the positive that it's portrayed as. Exactly. I mean, I think um, you know when you buy into this idea that you know you can be a millionaire or whatever. I guess now what was a millionaire is a billionaire, uh, and you hear stories about guys like Jeff Bezos or Steve Jobs or Bill Gates, and you know the the amount of work. Um, that they have to put into becoming who they become, you're almost kind of fed that idea that if you just, that that's the key to happiness. And if you just, you know, if you have a lot of money, then you're going to be happy. And I know a lot of rich people who aren't happy. Yeah. And I I think I thought, um, and I play it sometimes when I do uh, my introduction, um, a great, I guess, symbol of that idea is um, when Jimi Hendrix played the Star Spangled Banner and he plays it with, just enough warping, so it sounds like the the music that we understand as Star Spangled Banner, but it, but it's warped in such a way to how he plays it. I kind of felt that is a perfect symbol of that idea of American Dream. It's there, you can kind of hear it, and it does sound great, but it's there's a, such a warped idea behind it. Yeah, that that yes, I agree. So, um, just in talking about the idea of um, perspective, you have someone like John Adams, who, as far as I can, um, I've read, seems to live longer than any of the other characters around him. And his perspective is actually the longest, but in many ways, his view of America is also in many ways the most warped. 
Yes, I mean he's he's sort of um, um, he's married to an idea that is you know however many hundreds of years old, and he really hasn't evolved much past that idea, you know, and that's his Achilles heel, that uh, he really can't get past that original thing that was done and uh, his place in it. Yeah. And in issue six, you wrote without a boot on their neck, which is uh, their neck that they're being um, America. Some don't appreciate the beauty of a sunrise. They lose themselves in what they ain't got or what they think they need. So do you agree with that? And is that a, um, a, re- a reference to growing fascism in our country as well? Um, yeah. I mean, certainly um, I believe uh, Seesaw said that. Uh, I think um, I certainly think he believes that. Um I wouldn't probably go as far, but I can understand the perspective that he was coming from. You also said in the, I think it was in the um, next page, if pity for humanity ventures into your heart, strike it down with malice. So do, do you agree? Is humanity something that is almost should be pitied in, in such a sense that we do seem to have maybe lost perspective, we may have lost, uh, or we're driving for things that are not really that important to begin with? Well, I don't know if there's a universal we because I don't think everybody sees things the same way. I think that applies to those who would think that way. So what's what's your thought then? Um, uh, Again, I mean, for me, I, I try to find, I try to strike a balance of, um, you know, the drive of trying to create a legacy and to hopefully tell stories that... Um, people can embrace in such a way and see characters that they don't typically see doing things that they don't, you wouldn't typically see them do. And hopefully they bring something positive or good to people's lives. So with, um, with Philadelphia, um, how many issues are you planning for that one and how far ahead have you been plotting? Uh, I, I have five arcs kind of, uh, plotted out in my head. So that's uh, five, six-issue arcs. That's 30 issues. So, you know, I'm pretty sure we'll go beyond that. But um, for right now, I've got 30 issues in my head. So since you're, you have so much background in the movies, when you're writing Philadelphia, is part of your, are you thinking at all, hey, this would be a fantastic movie, or this would be great on Netflix, or this would be great here or there? No, I'm just trying to tell a good story. So are there any other comic books that you're currently working on? Uh, there are three other series that Jason and I have uh, over the course of the next six months that will come out. Uh, we really can't talk about them before Image talks about them, but they'll all be coming out uh, from Image Comics. And um, it's a lot. We've got a lot of stuff happening over the next six months or so. Oh, that, that's fantastic. And I do hope as they come out, you do stop by and want to chat with us about um, all your audio cool things and the movie that's coming out. Happy to. Happy to. Fantastic. Um, well, um, thank you very much, Mr. Barzo. It was really fantastic talking with you. Likewise, man. Um, I really appreciate it. Oh, it's our pleasure and uh, my pleasure. Um, do you mind giving us a bumper? Um, this is Rodney Barnes. And uh, thank you guys for listening to The Spoiler Country. And I look forward to coming back. All right. Thank you so much, sir. You're fantastic. All right. Talk to you soon. Indeed. Have a great day. You too. And we're back. 
We are back. After we chit chat between takes here to uh, you know make new new more work for us to do, but it's yep. fun stuff. Yeah. So, did you order it yet? You're gonna order it as soon as we get off. Right I'm here. gonna be ordering issue issue one. As soon as, well, it's like it fifteen sucks. twenty bucks somewhere on there. Yeah, I don't really care about that, but yeah. I like. I like to buy the trade so I can read it all at once. I hate waiting for an issue. You know what's it's weird so bad. that you say that? That is like the new norm. Every a lot of people like that. Like I know, I know. I'm don't quote me on this, but I think you can look it up, and I'm pretty positive, pretty positive that the Walking Dead trade paperbacks outsell the individual issues. Oh, they yeah, they're they're in so many printings. I'm, I guarantee that's true. Yeah, yeah, I would and, bet money on that. And, yeah, and Saga is sold more that way. Mm-hmm. And you know, you go back. I tried to get Why the Last Man. It was hard to get the individual issues. I got two through sixty three. Yeah. I can't get number one. And right. I, honestly, I got number one as a reprint. I don't want to. I'd love to have a first printing, <laughs> but it's like four hundred dollars. And I'm just right. like, I just can't do it. I just can't do it. But you right. get but the the trade paperbacks. I was talking to. Uh, an LCS, they can't even keep those things in. Why of why the last man? Yeah, it's a it's an, it can't, an old series. Yeah, you know. Yeah, it's like look at look at Sandman. Sandman still sells out of the trade paperbacks. It's, I mean, yep. it's still in print. You know. Yep, they just keep doing it. I think a lot of, I I think the arcs now are so geared like like in the eighties and I think in the nineties they didn't think of trade paperbacks that way. No, no, you write you write for the trade now. So you write yeah. three to six issue arcs. You write for the trade. Yeah, which is crazy. Yeah, which is cool. But you should at least get number one. Yeah, no, it, it sounds amazing. I, can't, I, I mean, I, I remember you talking about it before with, with uh, Jason and stuff, and now it's like, now I feel like I, I, if I don't buy it, I'm doing a disservice to not only Comic Dump, but our podcast. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, I hope you guys enjoyed listening to, to Rodney. The guy is super cool. Uh, I can't wait to see what else he comes out with later down the line, because uh, he's a lover of comic books. So uh, it's just, I think it's just going to get better and better and better. And. Yeah man if you like that and you want to hear more uh, maybe go check out the Jason Alexander interview that we did a couple months back you can go into spoilerverse.com and check out all the back issues for spoiler country uh, they're all there and they're all free they are and uh, not only that but there's more shows out there there's in the geekdoms and, and polygon warriors and misery yep. point radio that's all free up there as well yep and you can also read all these articles Funny and book forensics. reviews and previews we got so many so many people writing for it. I mean, we get articles coming out daily right now. It's insane. It is. And insane. there's a store you can buy T-shirts and hoodies that fly as hell. Get a poster for your wall and have your wall look fly as hell. Yep. It's 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 so cool. It's all the options you want. They're there. And every time you buy something, it helps us out by helping us us pay the bills here. Yep. It's good stuff. Good good stuff. All right, guys. I think we're done. We're done. That's a show. And usually we end the show doing this big, bold, brash, open the mind thing. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do it just subtly and say, okay. open the mind. Oh, no. That's not how we say it. We that's say, how we say it. <laughs> <laughs> in, an oceans, in an oceans of podcasts, we are Cthulhu. And as Cthulhu compels you to do, open the mind and read more.